And I think we have to let go of our ego as owners of these companies and say, what am I doing to create awesome lives for the people that work for me? Because once that happens, my company will go to, to new heights, heights that I never even dreamed could happen. Welcome to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is the only podcast out there for professionals working in the gas compression industry. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss the latest trends and what the future holds. If you're working in the gas compression industry and have always wanted to sit down with the leaders in our field to pick their brain, this show is your chance. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com. Well, welcome back to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is a second part in our uh, our blue-collar skill trade series, and I'm very excited about our guest today who literally wrote the book on this. His name is Ken Rusk. He's the president of Rusk Industries. He's a professional ditch digger, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of Blue Collar Cash. So Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So just a, a quick, brief summary of your background. I know that you're in the construction business. So give us a catch up on how you got here. Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was 15, my high school shared a fence with an industrial park. And uh, after school, you know, we'd go hang out to carry out. And in order to get to that location, you had to cut through this hole in the fence. And, you know, it was something we did uh, all the time. So I just remember being in in this industrial park and seeing all these businesses that were just thriving. And they, they had all the things that young kids liked. They had you know, backhoes and tow motors, and they had dump trucks and a bunch of guys milling around. And, you know, at some point, you need to make some money. I mean, I'm like everybody else. I had to be able to take out my girlfriend on a date or go buy pizza or go bowling or do whatever I want to do, save for my first car. So one day I just walked up and I said, what do you guys do here? And they said, well, we, we basically dig ditches and we repair old foundations on buildings. And I said, well, yeah, I can do that. I, like I said, I needed a job like anybody else. So I started digging ditches in the summertime, and then in the wintertime, I would work in the office. So I kind of got a feel for what the whole company was like after a few years of that. At one point, the company grew so big, they wanted to open up branches or, or franchises of, of their location because we were running two hours in every direction. So they actually came to me and said, would you like to help us open these? So I got the chance to open half a dozen of those around the country in the Midwest and Then finally got tired of living out of a suitcase and settled in Toledo about 33 or four years ago. I'm still digging ditches today. I mean, I don't don't have my hand on the shovel as much as I used to, but it's been a pretty great ride. Man, that is a cool story. I've got a lot of follow-up questions. That's a really unique perspective then on where we are today. I'm in the machine shop business. This podcast is typically geared toward mechanical, mechanically driven people in the gas industry. What do you see today in 2021 that's different than it was, or is it different than it was when you were first getting your start in an entry-level trade position or blue-collar job? I think there's been like this perfect storm, and I talk a lot about this in Blue Collar Cash. Back in the 80s, it was someone's genius idea to get rid of shop classes in high schools 
and replace those classes with computers. Now, I know that we all needed to learn computers. In fact, in many blue collar jobs, you have to learn how to, how to use a computer and that's fine. But I always wondered, why was that a binary choice, like one versus the other? Why couldn't we have had both in school? So that's kind of started this process of millions of kids who would almost accidentally discover carpentry, plumbing, mechanics, uh, welding, all those types of things. And they didn't have that opportunity anymore. So that's kind of part one. I think part two is when I was a kid, we went in the backyard and we grabbed a hammer and some nails and whatever lumber we could find. And we built tree forts and, you know, you did that, you built a go-kart. I mean, you did all those kinds of things. Well, now kids are using their phones to build cities on Minecraft. And, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, you don't really get the same perspective or the chance to kind of fall in love with building something with your own two hands. So if you put those two forces together, Michael, with the fact that colleges are now really, really good at shaming you if you don't go to school, you know, it's either go to school or you'll be a failure. We have this perfect storm of influence away from these amazing, honorable jobs that we all do for a living and that are becoming more lucrative every day. Okay. So I'm in Amarillo, Texas, and I'm going to, in a couple of weeks, meet with, can't remember exactly the title, but our city is doing a few things in an effort to highlight the trades and give students entering, you know, freshman, sophomore years in high school, kind of a different track or different area. Do you feel like we're doing a better job of that now? Are you seeing that in your area where high schools are doing that? And also, I think what I want to talk to the schools about is on the employer side in the private sector, I feel like there's been a disconnect whenever the schools have tried to say, we will train them and give them a certificate and then they can work for you. And when they bring us a certificate, I say, that's great, but that doesn't really mean you can actually weld or run a machine like we need you to. So there's kind of been a disconnect there. Do you see that? I think what happens is parents have almost arrived at this default kind of thought process where they say, let's see, I birthed my child, I raised my child, I fed my child, I clothed them, I've educated them, and now they have to go to college. It's almost like just the next step in line of their thinking. And I don't necessarily blame them for that because they've been kind of indoctrinated into thinking that way. What happens, though, is the reality sets in because in the United States today, there's about 165 million people working at any one time, which would be considered pretty good full employment. Well, a full 70 some million of those people do something with their hands. So the law of supply and demand is a very powerful, very influential law that you can almost never fight against. And this is what's happening now. So as we begin to oversupply college degrees, we are undersupplying blue collar workers. And the law of supply and demand is pretty simple. If the supply is low and the demand is high, that's where the money goes. And that's why now you're seeing carpenters, plumbers, electricians making as much as lawyers and, and engineers, and in some cases, small town family doctors without all the debt. So it's really important that we get the message out to parents that I just wrote a big blog about this. It's a message that is hard to hear, but it's okay if your son or daughter doesn't go to college. There are so many other paths that they can take to a happy life and a successful and lucrative one. And at the end of the day, is it our job as parents to create highly educated kids or happy ones? Because those don't always coincide. 
And that's why I think it's really important that parents at least take a step back and go, well, wait a minute. There are other options out here that I just haven't even been considering. And blue collar is definitely one of them. That's great. I started the Acton Academy in my town. So it's a, it's a learner-driven school that it offers apprenticeships and things like that for young people. And so we, it's exactly the same message that we tell parents. College is, is a great, it's a tool that should be used only when necessary, if that's the path that you're going to head down and you need it for that. I was meeting with a high school teacher yesterday talking about our school, and he said the exact same thing. He said, I pay my plumber more than I paid an attorney. And I said, <laughs> I did not realize I, you're exactly right. The supply and demand thing, the more bachelor's degrees that are out there, the less valuable they become. It's interesting because when you think of it, and I have to start out by saying I'm, I'm not an anti-college guy. Okay. If, same if you're going to operate on my shoulder so I can get back on the golf course, which happened recently, I'm going to want you to know everything there is to know about using a knife before you come at me. If you are going to teach somebody something, or if you're going to engineer a building or do banking for someone, yeah, you're going to want to know all of that. But if you're just going because someone told you that you have to go, yes. man, you better take another step. And, yes. and, and you know, it, it's not all about learning how to play beer pong and getting $100,000 into debt. I mean, you really have to be careful what your choices are, especially when you think of these numbers. And these blew me away. When I wrote the book, I couldn't believe in my eyes when I read these numbers. 40% of kids go into college as undecided, meaning they don't know why they're there. Another 25% of those kids change their major in the first year or two, causing them even more time and money. But the most stunning number was 35% to 38% of adults who have a college degree never use it in their lifetime. You really have to say to yourself, if I don't know exactly why I'm going, and if there isn't a specific job waiting for me on the other end of that, I really need to take another look at what some of the other opportunities are, because there's some really amazing and lucrative ones out there. Man, those are very surprising. I knew that there was a lot of kids that go into college, sure what they want to do, but 40%, that's almost half. That's a lot. What you said was exactly right. Parents don't really know, because that's kind of what they did. Like, hey, well, you got to go to college if you want to make something. So that's, that's one part of it is putting those statistics out there for parents and kids to have conversations around. What can we, you and I, as owners of what we would call skilled trade businesses or blue collar businesses, what can we do to make those things more attractive? I spoke with a guy last week who's in the, he's actually a consultant in the construction roofing business. And he was saying he went into a Burger King and he saw this flyer that showed what happens or the path that you can take from starting as flipping burgers all the way up to like running a Burger King in the path. And he said something along the lines of, you know, plumbing companies or construction companies, machine shops, we're not doing a good job of saying, yeah, you can come in as an apprentice, but here's the path. So what do we need to do to make the skilled trades more, more desirable to the younger workforce? Well, first off, I think I've been very fortunate in my lifetime and I've been very successful and I am eternally grateful for that. And because of that, I give back like crazy. In fact, all the proceeds from my book, I give to local charities like Junior Achievement and Make-A-Wish and those kinds of things. I think the first thing that has to happen is parents have to realize that my goal is to raise a happy kid. So the stigma of a blue-collar job is something that was just invented by someone, probably, a, I would say, a college marketing company. Because if you think about it, no one ever rolled up into my driveway and looked at what I've accomplished. And their first question was, man, where'd you go to school? 
I, I've never had that happen. It's always, how did you grind out this awesome life? And that's when I share with them, well, this is how this works, right? So I think companies probably need to do a better job of creating cultures within themselves so that people understand that they can do these jobs. You know, with technology, it, some of these jobs aren't quite as hard as they used to be, which is great for gals too, like, like women who want to join. I guess women make great welders. I didn't know that because they're patient. There's a lot of things that companies can do to improve their culture, but I think it all starts with this. If your child can get what they want for themselves with and through my company, then they're accomplishing the goal that we all set out to have, which is a confident, self-driven, self-motivated, financially free, smart, you know, willing to work, initiative type child that can take control of their life. I mean, one thing that people don't realize about blue collar work is that, you know, you control your own input, you control your own output, you control the quality of that. In many cases, you control your timing, your schedules, and your financial gains. So there's a whole lot to be said for these jobs. And I, I just don't think we're doing a good enough job putting it out there right now. Oh, wow. That's uh, very well said. Has your company faced any of the, you know, issue, the, the great resignation that we've talked about? Are you seeing that in Ohio and in your company specifically, like people moving away that were already there? That's a great question. When you're in the ditch digging business, you have to do a lot to build a great culture in, in order to keep people and retain them and, and, you know, make them understand that they can build a life for themselves. We've been at this for a very long time. We had to build a good culture 10, 15, 20 years ago in order to attract workers to our company. So we do a lot of really cool things with, they say it's not always about money, but it's also about how they feel where they work. So we do a lot of things with recognition, with music, with color, with celebrations. We spend a lot of time on each individual helping them to design the life they want for themselves, to physically draw it out on a piece of paper, keep that in front of them. And then we chop those goals into small pieces and help them get them one at a time. Things like you know, their first checking account, their first car, their first house or apartment, they're paying off their debt or you know whatever, straightening out something they need to straighten out. So vacations and all that kind of stuff. We have a big board that we print all this stuff. They post it on this board. The people follow along with these others as they walk down the path towards their goals. So the bottom line is you just got to be really totally interested in not only what that person is going to do for you between Monday through Friday, but also how is their life getting better working for you? You have to answer that question. And once you do, I'm telling you, I've always believed in, in my company that I've said this many times. I can't get what I want, nor can my company get what it wants or needs until all of you get what you want and need first. And I think we have to let go of our ego as owners of these companies and say, what am I doing to create awesome lives for the people that work for me? Because once that happens, my company will go to, to new heights, heights that I never even dreamed could happen. It's almost like, thanks, Ken, now get out of my way and let us go do it. Wow. So is that part of your hiring process? Is that what you've kind of just baked into? I mean, do you have a list of applications on your desk that you can't even get through? Or Obviously, this, this is a challenging time for hiring for lots of people. We're just really good at it because one of the very first questions we asked is, we ask in an interview is, why are you here? I'm here for a job. Okay, a job for what? So I can make money. Okay, good. A job for making money for what? So I can pay my bills. Well, 
Okay, so let's get beyond that. If you had extra money, what would you do with it? Well, you know what? I might like to get a new car. I might like to get a vacation. I might like to move into a house. Aha, now we're on to something. So we insist that everyone within our company is chasing some type of goal in order to be here. We love to kind of help them do that and then celebrate it when they do it and then jump on the very next one as soon as that happens. Oh, my gosh. How many employees do you have? We started uh, in, in 1986 with six, and we have almost 200 today. So it's quite the challenge. I always call myself, it's funny because people say, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm kind of an involuntary life coach. And the, the reason I say that is because I don't have any training in it. I don't have any formal skill to coach people. I certainly don't have any letters after my name, you know, so, but it was a, a love of watching someone go from lost to, man, I have so much direction now. I just can't wait to breathe another day and make another goal happen. That's pretty much all I do right now is just get involved in their goals and coach them along and, and to hold them accountable when, when I need to and pick them up when they stumble. And it's a labor of love. And I, I guarantee you, I encourage anyone listening out to that owns a company, get more involved, ask those questions, and you're going to be amazed at the answers you get. That's amazing. Talk to me if you can speak to our main audience in this gas compression podcast would be fairly large companies. Think Exxon, Chevron, Shell. These are big, big companies that have lots of different layers and are complex. You have uh, two things. So you've got a mechanic or someone that's in the skilled trade hearing you say this, and they're like, oh my gosh, I wish, I wish my boss would do that. I wish my company would do that. How can they, from within, how can they help maybe spur on some change within a big organization, not a company like yours or mine, where they can just go right to the owners and, and talk to them. But you know, they've got a boss who has a boss who has a boss. How can these guys that are in the skilled trades and these bigger companies go to their supervisors and say, gosh, you should have heard this guy Ken on this podcast. How do we do that? How do we start that culture? Well, I look at it this way. I used to think big companies, large corporations were just that, you know, there's these huge monoliths and of society and, and whatever. But what I'm learning is inside of those companies are just dozens or maybe even a hundred small companies, just like mine and yours. They're all locally centered around different areas in the country and they all have unique problems. You know, they say all politics is local. I think all companies are local, meaning each different region or area has its unique problems. So, but they're all kind of independent when it comes to, I got to find someone to grab that wrench and work on that pipe. We all are in the same boat there. So I don't think it's as difficult as you, as you think. I think someone listening to us right now should say, you know, and next time you have a lunch meeting or a staff meeting, just say, hey, look it, I'd like to hear about what, you know, why you guys are here. I'd like to hear why you're here, why you're here. What are you after? What are you chasing? What are you doing? Because together, if we all have something that's really pushing us forward, something that, that we're chasing, it's going to make this whole company better from retention of employees to attitude to culture. To I would much rather celebrate something than get yelled at for something. So, I mean, all that stuff begins to change. And I think any local branch manager would be out of his mind or her mind if they didn't at least entertain that idea because it, it only has the upside. There's, there's really no downside to it. Where do you think we're headed in the next 10 or 20 years? A continual, like you spoke about, the economics are simple. Supply and demand will tell you that the less skilled labor there is, the higher we'll have to pay for that. 
is that the trajectory we're on for a while? Do you see it where it's people are paying attention and coming back into the skilled trades? Where do you think we're headed? I think there's a lot of groundswell. There's a lot of independent, like even the efforts that you're doing locally in your town. I think people are starting to see, and that's driven by supply and demand. I mean, if the workers were plentiful, that's not something we'd be focusing on right now. I think that stuff is starting to happen. I think you're going to see price pressures just keep increasing. Wage pressures are going to keep increasing. And that's not such a bad thing, right? But I got to tell you, I told this story to a, there was four or five uh, moms standing in a circle at this party. I remember walking up to them and they were talking about, well, my kid's going to go to this college and my kid's going to go to that college and my daughter's going to go to this college. And oh, what about what's her name's son? Oh, he's just going to be a plumber. Okay, well, I know that kid and I know that plumber. And, you know, he's now got six employees and he's making six figures every year and he's having a great life. So, One of the things that I tell them is this, you have two options. Number one, you can send your kid to a $50,000 a year school, all in room, board, books, food, gas, travel, everything. And at the end of that, you're going to have a $200,000 bill or a debt. Hopefully you've saved for it. But if you borrowed it, that becomes a debt or a negative on your asset base, right? Now, that same kid, if he wasn't meant to go to school or she wasn't meant to go to school, that person could be jumping right into a career making $50,000 a year in their first year. That's $200,000 on the plus side over four years, or an unbelievably $400,000 swing in their asset base towards the positive. You start looking at those kind of numbers, and you think about, that could be a house, that could be a car, that could be you know a retirement package. I mean, you start thinking about that all by the time they're 23. It's a pretty serious issue for you to make this decision just haphazardly because everybody else says I'm supposed to do that. Again, you just really have to take a minute and go, wait a minute, am I just being corralled into this line of thinking or should I not step back and go, wow, there's some other options out there. Wow. Any other insights you want to share with us from your book in the research that you did uh, leading up to it being released? What started out as a book that it came from coaching. It came from having people, whether you're 17 or 50, figure out, okay, What do I want my life to look like? How can I draw that out and go get it? There was an interesting study, and I'll close with this. So in the University of Virginia Tech, they had a study. They took 100 people, and they said, if you typically have a lot of goals, raise your hand. Only 20 of the 100 people raised their hand. So let's get rid of the 80 for a second. They were living for Monday through Friday. So of the 20 people, they said, okay, of the goals that you have, how many of you have a specific goal that you've written down. Well, 16 of them said, I just dream and I just hope and I wish and someday it'll happen. Only four were willing to write those goals down. And of the four, only one could access it right there and show them their goals, meaning they posted it in their bathroom wall or they put it in their kitchen or in their car or in their office. Those 1% made eight times more money than the other ones combined in their lifetime. And it's only because they took the time to write their goals down and keep them in front of them using the power of their brain and the attraction that comes with that to have those goals just naturally become hit one after another after another. So I think I want everybody to know this. You are so much more in control of your life than you think you are. You just have to start thinking, what's in it for me? What is my life going to look like in five, 10 years? What do I want that to look like? And then how can I go get it? You know, if, if they want to go to KenRusk.com, they can see everything I'm doing over there. They can buy the book on Amazon. They can buy the course that I have. 
You can get that at kenrust.com forward slash path. I'm just here to help. And again, if, if you support it, you're not only supporting me, but you're supporting a charity, a local charity as well. So, yeah, no, that's incredible. And I am so glad our paths crossed to get you yeah. on because I feel like you, you are the one that wrote the book on it. And so the best quote I wrote down from this conversation was blue collar isn't even a word. It was probably invented by college marketing thing. It's exactly right. So again, you can find Ken at kenrusk.com. The book is called Blue Collar Cash. You can get it on Amazon or on his website. Please check out his resources. This, uh, what an advocate for the skilled trades and the blue collar industries. So thankful to have you on, Ken. Thanks for coming on. No, thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. And again, uh, happy holidays to you and everybody out there listening. So you too. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gas Compression Podcast. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at gascompressionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com.